0: Hi, this is Paul. I want to talk a little bit about Malcolm and Simone's project with respect to John Vervecki's project. Now, those of you who are coming from Malcolm and Simone's channel might not be terribly um, aware of John Vervecki. Most on my channel will be very aware of John Vervecki. John Vervecki just had a recent video conversation with Jordan Peterson, Uh, I made a few comments on sort of the directionality of their conversation in this and how Jordan Peterson, in this conversation, keeps trying to link things towards the Bible, the Bible, psychology, civilizational religion. Jordan's always sort of moving, weaving in that realm. John Verveke, of course, coined the phrase, the meaning crisis. And John has um, spoken at length about the fact that the legacy religions, people are leaving the legacy religions, they're no longer functional for people. And so he is developing an ecology of practices to affect and afford many of the things that religions did for people in the past. People still need these things, but because for many people, these religions are no longer plausible, He's developing this ecology of practices. He's putting together a community, sort of the Silk Road also that is supposed to connect east and west in terms of the Western religious tradition, the Eastern religious tradition. He just did a series called After Socrates. So John's been working in that vein. And I've I've expressed my, you know, some of my thoughts with respect to this project before. I think it's, you know, I, as a Christian minister, continue to advocate uh, going back to a legacy religion like Christianity. I and John's quite open that he's not really trying to create a new religion. That is a an astoundingly um, ambitious project, but he's he wants to create an ecology of practices, and he finds people who are usually all over the West, and I'm sure the network will move into the East to some degree, uh, places where they can learn and practice meditation, places where they can practice uh, some of these Eastern legacy practices and beliefs too, some Western legacy practices and beliefs, and sort of weave them all together into something which pe- that people can use to alleviate the meaning crisis, let's say it that way. Now, the All the way back to the beginning when we started our conversation, one of the issues that I talked about that he has very much um, recognized is scale, in that John is a very learned man. Uh, John is incredibly well-read. John is a world leader in cognitive science. John, his... Even the, even the language that he is using that many of us have found extremely helpful in terms of sort of grappling with, even if you're a Christian and you're trying to grapple with everything that has changed in society, I found that language of John so helpful, and a number of us have. And so we've had conversations, myself and John, I'm going to talk to him next week. We've done events, myself, John, and Jonathan Peugeot, and we've worked on these things. And so this is very much you know, what we've been working on. Now, when I found Malcolm and Simone, I knew that, in many ways, these people are working on the same project. Now, this video that they just released, Why People Leave Their Religions and How to Try to Guard Against It, of course, their overall project, I think, is more specific than John's in that they have a very specific material goal which is that the human race continue to physically reproduce and repopulate because they're not fighting something quite so esoteric as a meaning crisis, or let's say psychological or immaterial as a meaning crisis. They are fighting something which is very physical, which is population collapse and they have a whole set of theories with respect to the urban monoculture, reasons why population is collapsing and he's been on some major even mass media networks and YouTube channels talking about population collapse and and what they are developing to try to address it. And you know they are, you know I've, I've someone introduced them to me and I've we brought them into the channel. Now they've been on Sam's channel, so bit by bit by bit they're sort of getting woven into the conversation it was very interesting to me that as of um let me refresh this page over here like um as of 10 hours ago this video entitled why people leave their religion and how we will try to guard against it on their channel they now have about 8300 subscribers the channel's been growing fairly quickly uh, many of their videos, when they have sort of much more culture war type uh, topics on, they might get you know, they might get over a thousand or maybe even 2,000 views in a day, which is a good good size, which is a good size, um, it's a good number for a channel their size. but it's interesting, and I sort of watch other channels and I watch what videos seem to perform very well and what videos seem to underperform and this video is underperforming and malcolm says so at the beginning of the video he says when i when we ever talk whenever we talk about religion these videos don't perform as well as the others and i thought that's completely true my rough drafts for sunday videos do not perform as well as videos about jordan peterson or jonathan Peugeot or john verveke or if i'm addressing some sort of salient or hot button topic in sort of the the sensitive areas of our cultural landscape right now. I'll say it that way. I, however, when I saw the title to this religion, and Malcolm had made comment to Sam Tiedman, oh shoot, Tiedeman, about the video that he was that he was going to release on Friday, I thought, yes, this is very much a video that I'm interested in seeing. And the first. 30 40 minutes they they go through a bunch of the reasons why now i'm going to start to connect malcolm and simone with john vervekey's project i don't know I, I john if you're watching this video you know when we talk next week I'd, I'd be very interested i'd be very curious you probably just don't have time to get up to speed on these two but in many ways, they seem to, although John is a very broad and open man in many respects, they're taking this, they're they're in many ways addressing similar things to John, but from a very different perspective. And their approach is so much more religious. I mean, they are, when John says, and he's I take him at his word, I believe him completely, I'm not really trying to start a new religion. It's an ecology of practices, self-transcendence, You I mean, the, the speech that he gives. These people are starting to start a new religion. And again, I think back to that video of a few years ago with Ross Douthit talking about decadence. And, and I think about Ross Douthit's conversation about decadence and Eric Weinstein's conversation about decadence, and it seems to me that decadence is ending. <laughs> and we might hope for the decadent days some more, because decadence, at least, is kind of, slower and plodding and peaceful and jonathan Peugeot has been talking for a while that things are speeding up and things are going to get more chaotic and i think he's right and so part of sort of the thaw of decadence that we're seeing is now more and more the creation of new religions now i'll put a link to the vander clips clip that i have made this three years ago ross douthat asked why marianne williamson didn't found a church and now these guys aren't really founding a church and they're very clear about they're not really proselytizing because the design of their religion is really for their family and they they just had a oh, this whole video is fascinating and it's a it's late friday afternoon and i really have to get home but I couldn't not make a video about this. The, the whole video was just fascinating. And, and if I had the time, it would be worthy of an entire commentary, just about every point along the way I was interested in in this video. And I'm only halfway through. You know, we had we had a three-hour live stream today and the seven, the seven new randos and all of that, and so I've got to do some stuff with that. But they're dealing with all of these issues. And and they of course want to ha- create an institute to help religious people, Jews, Christians, whatever. Uh, they don't want to be antithetical to religious people. So again, they're similar to John Verveki in this way that John is very much trying to be a good neighbor and not speak ill or hostily of legacy religions because many, much of his audience, including myself and Jonathan Pajot, are committed to legacy religions, but. So they want to very much be open to that, but they're they're really taking on this project of well they're trying to found a new religion. Now I, I, I am equally skeptical with respect to their project as I am with John Verveke's project. I'm perhaps even more skeptical with their project because, of course, they are trying something that is even harder. John has sort of said, well, I'm just, you know, I'm pointing out practices. We've got the Verveke Foundation. We're trying to start a network, want people to be able to find these practices. And let's say, you know, let's use Rafe Kelly and his work for a, for a minute. And, you know, Rafe has been on the show, uh, on the channel a number of times. And, you and, and, you know, someone like Rafe Kelly's project is very much fits into John Verveke's overall ecology of practices. And Rafe is, is very much not antithetical to Christianity. He, you know, Rafe, Rafe describes his own stance with respect to the faith. But, you know, Rafe has a very specific targeted thing that he does to help people in terms of of movement and flow. And, you know, there's ideas behind that. So... But Malcolm and Simone are really addressing many of the hard problems. Now, will they be successful? That's a whole other question. And I tend to, I tend to think that legacy religions and 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 the shaping that comes over long periods of time will almost that communities over long periods of time will almost always outperform individual efforts even from very smart people like Malcolm and Simone so I want to play a little bit of this video I could play the whole thing I it's it I I this video I'm just astounded and you know part of what makes me do the videos that I do about sort of jumping in is because oh I've got lots of I've got lots of things I could address in this video but I I, I just wanted to address this and part of the reason I wanted to address this was often talk to my wife about she's been a school teacher for she hasn't been a school teacher she hasn't been a public school teacher as long as I've been a Christian minister because you know we had our children she homeschooled our children and so it's it's only at a certain point it's a number of years ago that she got into the public school test system and she's been teaching at um, a school in Sacramento but one of the things that we notice is how, how the children are changing and how the parents are changing. And so with her Waldorf school, she teaches one class for eight years, and now she's on her second group for eight years, and she's been noticing the difference between the first group and the second group. Now, COVID was in there, and that was a big thing. But one day we talked about reverence, for example, um, respect for authority, reverence. And she noted that many of the, the children didn't have a sense of reverence, and she talked about the fact that she... She grew up in a church, and in her case it was a Lutheran church, and you had the sanctuary in front of the sanctuary, you had the altar, and of course there were vestments, and all of that liturgy and tradition built in it a sense of reverence. And that reverence you could then sort of use to talk about other things. And so she she and I were talking about that, and I said, you know, most of the children in your class have never gone to church. They've never seen the inside of the church. They've never done anything religious. Their ideas of reverence or awe or many of these things that if you grew up in a church, you picked up in that church or in that religious tradition, they're picking up from TV and video games, especially video games, because they're interactive. And so... What's amazing about Malcolm and Simone is that Malcolm and Simone, you know, they're a generation younger than I am. They're a little older than my kids, but um, they're younger than I am. They're sort of in, in between the generations of me and my kids. They're far more aware of the current world. I was making some, of course, the video I released today on Friday was about home math, and a number of comments came through that were very interesting to me. They basically said, well, you don't know women today. It's like, well, I know plenty of women today. Uh, but fair enough that you know I've got daughters who are in their twenties, and I know the f- I know the sense of the friends of my sons and daughters, and of course I know a fair amount of men through this work because my my channel is predominantly uh, populated by men, and this little corner tends to be a very male space. But twenty-something women out in the dating market, yeah, I've not um, I've not been in the dating market with these women at all. And so there's a lot I don't know. And, and so that's very interesting. But now Malcolm and Simone here in this clip are taking on the scale problem head on. And I'm fascinated by the way they're doing it.
1: This has a, a, another really important thing that we really wanted to work into this which was we wanted to structure the religious tradition in a way where individuals who are completely atheistic could live and work within it, going all the way up to individuals who are much more like
0: actually believing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it needed to. And, And now this, what they're, what they're dealing with here is something we're always bumping into in the corner. That people who are very atheistic see the utilitarian value of religion, but, the cognitive dissonance, what he said earlier in this video about why people, I, I think he's dead on right about a ton of stuff in terms of why people are living religion. I think he's dead on right. He's, he's got a far better handle on it than actually a lot of Christian ministers I know. And actually, I want to go back and deal with some of that stuff at some point, too. But this stuff, the, the connection between John Verveke and the Collins' project, as I got into this section, really sort of gripped me. So for many people who see the utility of religion and see the value of it, but, but they, ju- they just don't believe it. So in other words, these two are saying, our religion has to deal with that problem. So you can have interpretations that work for both of those. And then it
1: also needed to have interpretations that work for children and adults and and dumb people and smart people. And this is really important because if you look at pretty much all the successful traditions, they do this, right? Like, uh, you know, a child who sees God as like existing on a cloud and like an old guy with a beard. and, And basically they're thinking of you know, an interpretation of Zeus really, but, but certainly not the Christian God, but it's, it's the way that we explain these stories to children. You know, some people make fun of us. They're like, "What you guys are taking like actual, like Warhammer 40k stuff and just explaining to your kids. That's how your demon, you know, world works. Mm -hmm.
0: uh, And it's like, and people mock that, but those people that are mocking that have had experience with real religion. And their understanding. See, here's one of the things is they've got little kids, and so they're they're very much embedded in a world of little kids. Whereas Jonathan Peugeot's kids are a little bit older. Jonathan raised his children as Christians. John Verveki is a little older than I am, so his kids are, are are grown adults. So, the fact that they recognize that children are getting. Their religious imagination is being formed by video games and and streaming media. Well, they're right. Well,
1: and I'm like, well, okay, you're a Christian. Do you believe in, like, a red devil with, like, hooves and horns? That is not from the Bible. That is all extra biblical fan fiction. A lot of religions do this. And the reason why, like you don't throw out that interpretation of the devil is because it's iconic and it's good and it helps get across certain lessons. And we've had different interpretations of the devil throughout time. Like the devil at the crossroads,
0: who is, you know, maybe. Now now this is where I just, I had to, Someday, someday I'll either not have to do any administrative work or I'll have someone to do my administrative work for me because it's the part of the job that I actually hate and then I procrastinate. So then I, I try to watch videos while I do my administrative work so at least it's, it's less painful. So I was doing some administrative work and I was watching Jonathan Peugeot's Symbolism of Titans, Giants, and Nephilim. And when you go through what
2: Jonathan Peugeot has to say... That's the way to think about it. It's something like the, the accident of meaning, the side effect of meaning. These are all ways to understand what it is that giants are for. And you could say also, the excess of body is really the way to understand it in this case, which is in some ways that the, the, the meaning isn't aligned. It's, it's not aligned towards what it really should be. And so because of that, it creates something which you could say has a lot of body but doesn't have a lot of head, that has a lot of body, but that doesn't have a lot of spirit. And if you think of just different ways in which giants are represented in the popular cultures as, um, you know, stupid, the kind of ogre type figure that is huge, but is not very smart. This is, of course, something that is just very pervasive in the way we understand our culture. But you can see how all of these things kind of come together, which is the, the bad union of heaven and earth, the wrong union of heaven and earth, the, the accidental union of heaven and earth, which makes it so what you get is something like a lot of power and very little direction. A lot of, uh, you know, you could call them, you have more of the accidental aspect of the union of heaven and earth, and this is represented, of course, also in the way in which the giants are, are represented in, for example, in Greek culture, again, as usually so so in many in other words
0: malcolm is making a very similar point to jonathan peugeot that religious traditions deal with these kinds of questions all the time it's just that and this this i think is where a lot of this a, a lot of the work has to kind of be done and it's really sensitive work cs lewis actually deals with a lot of these questions in his book miracles both where he talks about horrid red things and where he talks about the ascension is that there are different modes of processing this stuff. And part of what happened in the Enlightenment is there was a flattening of our language, and that you can get at it in terms of Barfieldian talk about participation. There's a flattening of our language and a Again, back to McGilchrist, sort of a a fetish size. I can never say that darn word. Why do I try to, Why do I keep trying to say that word? Fetish, fetish fetishization. That's not even right. I'm not even saying it right. But you know, it's turning into a. It's it's a certain a certain language mode. This this physical correspondentism has become a fetish. You could say it that way a cultural fetish, that we are just fixated on this thing and we desire it. And I think, again, this is sort of embassy brain desiring that has that has come through. When, you know, what Peugeot is saying is basically part of what happens with Peugeot and his symbolic world project is he's saying, forget that, we're just going to talk about giants. Because talking about giants is a better way To actually communicate and understanding spiritual bodies and and many of these what were sort of dismissed in the Enlightenment as archaic forms of speech. This is is a better way to actually deal with some of these things.
1: Be making deals or playing a fiddle or something like that, right? Like these were relevant to convey certain concepts to people of those periods around like con men and other sorts of swindlemen that were uh, around them and not deleterious to the religious tradition. So,
0: someone, I want you to talk a bit about how. In other words, Milton could write Paradise Lost. And everybody sort of got it. And today, well, you can you can make a piece of art, but it lands differently in the culture. It isn't necessarily dismissed because look at Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Harry Potter—all of these things sort of landed, but they were held differently. And even when people sort of larped, they wear their way into them and, and dressed it up. Boy, that's kind of a fun—that's uh, kind of a fun uh, image. We'll capture that. Um, We sort of took that into our culture. And again, back to C.S. Lewis's miracles, C.S. Lewis makes the point that actually the world is very accommodating to this thing, to, to, to these multimodal ways of talking and imagining. Part of what we just get tripped up on is sort of the enlightenment fetishes around these things.
1: Our tradition is sort of built for kids and stupid people. Like, what did that look like for us?
3: i mean a lot of it looks like and we've been discussing this internally forever holidays because that's how so many people primarily
0: and she's exactly right holidays why does jonathan Peugeot and richard Rowland's universal history so often deal with holidays because it's at these holidays that actually all of this stuff comes together you have christmas and easter christians
3: relate to religion people always talk about like well what kind of Christian slash Jew are you like do you do you go to church every single day week or are you only there for like Easter or Christmas or like these special holidays and that's I think where we decided to start when it came to building traditions because it's the holidays that people show up for especially if they follow the right holiday criteria which include things like being super photographable and and really fun and very kid-friendly often involving gifts, often involving yeah. fun decorating schemes, often involving fun meals, that kind of thing. I mean, and so that's how we've, we've done our this. upcoming holiday,
1: the future police, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. So we have the future police, which is, we will also call like, among adults, the agents of provenance in our religion, steal things from our children that are sort of addictive Skinner box, like devices or toys.
1: The audience or... knows about this tradition. Yeah. Talk about what they look like, like the way that we portray them to our kids.
3: So with Future Day, the, the vision of the future police that our kids are normalizing around is more like stormtroopers or RoboCop and not so much like this very amorphous, could not you know we can't even fathom more like what Winwood Reed had described where you know just like it who knows what it, what is embodied like it's such an abstract concept like
0: these are parents and business people building a religion instead of an academic Be, you know just think it's future day future police are kids going to get that yeah they are and I know for a lot of adults listening to this, they're going to say, <laughs> you know, they're just going to laugh. I'll tell you, the older generation laughs at Harry Potter and the younger generation is dressing up. The older generation laughs at Star Wars and says, that's a space Western. And the younger generation adopts a religion It writes Jedi into the religion and the government of the UK has to take it seriously. Don't scoff at this stuff. I mean, this is how human beings make culture.
3: Totally above us. So obviously with our holidays, things get dumbed down because it makes it more approachable and fun.
1: So the the gist is is that the future police within our tradition, they look like stormtroopers to a kid, right? Like they look like... Uh actual futuristic police, like they would see in a sci-fi or something like that. Whereas to an adult in our tradition, they follow much more closer to the words of Wynwood Reed, you know, you, I think it, ethereal beings of which we cannot even conceive. They're, they're a being or a type of entity that is beyond our powers of conception. The words we were looking for were, You blessed ones who shall inherit that future age of which we can only dream. You pure and radiant beings who shall succeed us on the earth. And if we're going to look at how he describes sort of what they look like or the way they should be conceptualized. He says, these bodies, which now we wear, belong to the lower animals. Our minds have already outgrown them. Already we look at them with contempt. A time will come when science will transform them by means which we cannot conjecture and which, even if explained to us, we could not understand, just as the savage cannot understand electricity, magnetism, or steam. Disease will be extirpated. The causes of decay will be removed. Immortality will be invented. And then, the Earth being small, mankind will migrate into space and will cross the airless Saharas, which separate planet from planet and sun from sun. The Earth will become a holy land, which will be visited by pilgrims from all the quarters of the universe. Finally, men will be masters of the forces of nature. They will become themselves the architects of systems, the manufacturers of world. Man then will be perfect. He will then be the creator. He will therefore become what the vulgar worship as a god. There is but a difference in degree between the chemist who today arranges forces in his laboratory so that they produce gas, and the creator who arranges forces so they produce a world, between the gardener who plants a seed and the creator who plants a nebula. We do not wish to extirpate religion from the life of man. We wish to him to have a religion which will harmonize with his intellect and which inquiry will strengthen, not destroy. We wish, in fact, to give him a religion, for now there are many who have none.
0: Right there. Now, some of you, your blood ran cold when you read that because it was written in a religious register that you could feel harkens back to older religious texts. It was in a voice, a very religious voice, that you recognized and and so not only are they sort of making a new religion they're they're using tricks and sensibilities that they picked up from evangelicalism while in many ways pursuing a similar thing as John Verveke and using similar techniques as Jonathan Pageau when i so I was, I was you know filling out you know expense reports And I was listening to this, and it was just kind of like, wow, wow. Decadence is ending. (laughs) Buckle
1: up, boys and girls. And that really just aligns with our mission here. We are not looking to remove people from religion. We are looking to create a religion that people who right now live without religion or who would otherwise deconvert from religions can accept. And a religion which, as as he says, uh, will harmonize with his intellect and which inquiry will strengthen, not destroy.
0: And now, and what's so interesting is that theirs also has this added, so let's think about, so Tara Isabel Burton has been sort of working this beat for a while. Strange New Religions, these two get any more visibility. They're going to show up in one of her books if they haven't already. There are a few issues here. One is the old. So part of the advantage that the legacy religions have is human beings have an a, a seemingly deep sense of priority of the ancient and the old. Even in the modern world, this still remains. There's that little clip from the one comedian on Joe Rogan who was talking about how, you know, I'll just translate it into Simon and um, Malcolm and Simone language, that, yeah, the urban monoculture is no longer radical in school, being a sexual libertine is no longer radical in school. The really cool uh, people who break from the monoculture are the religious conservatives they're the cool ones because they're they actually seem to be a little bit unique and so and and the guy made the comment that you know because it's old and so that oldness again is something that is deeply many many look at scientology look at the look at the mythos that scientology created. if you don't know it just just Google South Park Scientology. You can learn it from South Park. Um, you know L. Ron Hubbard's little space fantasy. But but notice in a galaxy far far away. Uh, the again as I played before the the rest is history episode on Romans in space. Tom and Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook weren't necessarily linking all of these pieces together, but they're basically talking about the fact that many of these new modern fandoms connect with ancient things to to give them a degree of gravitas and to give them to give them ballast. Of course Tolkien did the same thing. Um, I was thinking today so, so Tolkien basically wrote the wrote the mythology <laughs> astounding thing in the Damien Walter Ian McGilchrist thing McGilchrist has never read, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, he says. I just haven't gotten around to it. It's like, <laughs> wow, Ian, please have a look. But but you can see why when I found Ian and or found Malcolm and Simone, why it was like bang, lights went on. Thought, oh, this, these people, this this is part of this meaning crisis conversation. But, but they are going about it in a deeply serious, powerful way. This is not the way that we
1: sell this to kids. We sell this to kids as, you know, stormtroopers, basically, right? And you can even do different iterations of the future day tradition where you have like evil future day police before the kids promise to make their world a better place and then like nice looking ones where you change their
0: visual schema. And, this also- See, and actually, I think that sort of thing, which is exactly what modern educators try to do and uh, evangelicals have tried to do and sort of mainline churches when, oh, the Bible became problematic and so they had all this virtue education. All that stuff tends to fail. And, and I, I suspect this kind of thing will not go too far either. Because what tends to succeed tends to be much more what has succeeded in the past. Now, let's give Brett Weinstein his due about, you know, changing, but I tend to I tend to put my money on the past. When you look at something like let's say Waldorf education. Waldorf education tends to well try to steep the children in fairy tales and the mythology of of a variety of other nations. That's what the Waldorf education tries to do because it assumes that no single generation is going to be smart enough to actually be able to sort of embassy brain, the master brain, I'm using McGokris language, is going to be able to sort of pull out the meaningful bits and make them plain and explicit. It's part of the reason why story is so powerful because stories are very difficult to exhaust. With an embassy brain approach with an autistic approach combinatorial explosiveness is built into the story in too deep of a way and when you get to very very deep stories like biblical stories like fairy tales like mythologies you're you don't you actually don't have enough time in your lifetime to exculpate to, to, to sort of make bring to the surface in this modern way, to bring to the surface everything that was within the story. The best you can do if you want a new story is to tell a new story and wait 500 years. But then you say, well, I won't be around 500 years. No, that's from now. That's my point. None of us can do this because this is fundamentally an intergenerational product, project. I think that's part of what Sam was pushing on Malcolm in their conversation recently. Also, it is
1: true with our profit system, right? Our profit system can be taken by a child to mean that these individuals are actual prophets in the way that like other religious traditions mean it, where it's like a God is talking to someone and that person is passing on moral advice. Or if you take sort of the adult understanding, these are individuals who are being influenced by potentially quantum events and like butterfly effect stuff to go down specific pathways to say the things that need to be said, but it's not necessarily a revelation from God as in an entity is actually talking in their ear. Now it might be, but it's not necessarily. Another thing that we haven't yet really mentioned or delineated is it was in our system we see the mystical arts or mystical approaches to things to always being a pathway to evil. And I should point out here, I I did not say that they are untrue or inaccurate. I am just saying that opening your mind to those sorts of possibilities innately destroys human intellect in a way that is really really damaging a human's ability to process the world in an ordered and structured manner if you want to word this in the way we would explain this to a child i would explain it very similar to the way that you know in in like the warhammer 40k universe you would talk about chaos opening your mind to the warp or to chaos would potentially give you some level of of magical powers or prescience or something like that but it is an incredibly dangerous thing to do and it's how demons can come in and take over your body so you see there we're using a a metaphor to explain something that we think is just a useful thing for a person in terms of how they're mentally developing and how they engage with the truth to prevent them from falling off the path of of logic and righteousness or to put it another Other way, a witch is a witch. It doesn't matter if they became a witch to, to try to make the world a better place or help people. It doesn't matter if they became a witch using instructions that came from one of the Abrahamic traditions. Being a witch will always corrupt your mind and soul.
2: You were telling me that it fucks.
0: Now. Oh, this is so interesting. So another thing that so some of you just listened to what Malcolm said and you are you were uh relieved because what he what he basically did there was sort of reinforce an enlightenment dogma that is very much inherited from Judaism and Christianity and, and anti magic. an anti-magic dogma that was in Judaism and Christianity that got elevated to the top of the stack in the Enlightenment. But part of what is happening here I would call myth laundering. And I say myth laundering sort of in connection with money laundering. What happens when you launder money? Well, let's say you generate, you have an illegal operation that generates a tremendous amount of cash, but you now have a problem because you have generated so much cash that now you can hardly spend this cash. And so what you need to do, if you remember Breaking Bad, Walter White uh, got a car, bought a car wash business because you look for a cash business that can generate a lot of cash that, you know, like a service business, and, you know, it's just sort of harder to track, you know churches would be amazing money laundering schemes until they got investigated because if you've got, you know, millions of dollars of donation coming through a tiny church that can only seat 30 people, all the IRS has to do is show up on a Sunday and say, nobody's here, but you've got, you know, receipts of millions of blah 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 blah. Anyway, so money laundering, you know what I'm talking about. You're just trying to sort of take something that is beneath the surface, bring it to the top and bring it into another world. Well, well, part of what post-Enlightenment religious projects try to do is myth laundering. And and myth laundering, um, I would say, is... have uh, Joe Rogan looking at me. Uh, myth laundering is similar to what happens when, let's say, people notice that, oh, some of these... Some of these clean and unclean laws in the in the Old Testament actually make sense to us within a germ theory, and and they actually mentioned this in this video. So hand washing, let's say. So religions got there beforehand because, and you can make sort of a Darwinian case about this. Those groups that did hand washing outperformed groups that did not. You can make, and they in fact make this case in this video. They're very interesting. Case here about um, the whole arena of sexual behavior in Christianity today. Groups that prep groups that um, groups that suppressed antinatalist behaviors such as gay sex, masturbation, etc., etc., uh, even suppressed contraception would outperform in terms of reproduction, other groups, and therefore that's what's left. They had similar arguments about patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is sort of myth-washing, where you, you look at a myth and you say, oh, I." it's very similar to the way a lot of evolutionary psychology is done on the Internet today. Oh, I see the adaptive value of that. And sort of with your embassy brain, you locate a specific adaptive value and say, oh, the reason hand washing is in this tradition even though nobody knew it was it because it gave them an adaptive advantage over communities that didn't wash hands and the reason was germs now now that's there it's not the case that there's nothing to that argument but if you pause for a moment to reflect the fact that ancient stories ancient rituals and ancient practices that endure in a Darwinian way. Probably have some combinatorial explosiveness, some some complexity beneath the, mytholo- the mythological layer that your right, that your your left brain in this your embassy brain is. See, part of the reason I always get this backwards is it's my right hand, and so I'm always thinking this side of my body. Your embassy brain in this can probably not exhaust or even necessarily completely explain so what we tend to do is we sort of tend to reverse engineer in this myth laundering and and we think oh that's the reason is it it might be a reason it might in fact have some truth to it but just in the way you probably can't fully exhaust a fairy tale that is thousands of years old, you're probably not going to be able to myth launder that. And it's that comprehensively either. And so what we tend to do then is we do the myth laundering and then we try to reverse engineer a religion, but the odds of that succeeding are extremely small because of Darwin (laughs) and Darwinian types of ideas. Because you can't in your lifetime have really any chance at exhausting it or knowing. Now, again, it isn't that there isn't any knowledge in there, and it doesn't mean that it'll never be at least to a degree right or maybe even right enough in some cases. But on one hand, this sort of, affirms their overall project that your project should be multi-generational because you and your little life won't have enough life to actually know this. Just like this little religion that you make up now, Let's, you know, they're in their 30s, let's say. Let's say they live to 100, so 70 years. You'll probably know in 20 or 30 years how much of this, you'll, you'll get an idea in 20 or 30 years how much of this has taken if you yourself are still, believing this because truth be told you didn't believe it 20 years ago so what makes you think you're going to believe it 20 years from now and if you don't believe it 20 years from now i know so many people some of them i know very well who they were raised in christian families they were very conservative christians when they were in their 30s And their kids were under ten, and they raised them with very conservative Christian ideas, more conservative than me. uh, Very, they, they, you know, know, no Harry Potter or, or, you know, no Halloween, no trick or treat. I mean, they got rid of all of that stuff for Christian reasons. And now, twenty years later, they look back with their kids and laugh at themselves. Well, that religion didn't last long. And they, you know, they were they were completely, they were completely convinced of it when they did it, and convinced this was in their child's welfare. Now they just look back and laugh, or maybe look back with regret. And this is the kind of thing that even in, let's say, myself going from thirty to sixty, I have knowledge of. And we're talking things that are very, very old indeed. I don't think myth washing can work. It doesn't mean you can't learn anything from it, and again, it doesn't mean that you won't even find things that are true and right. But I don't know. If finally, it will even matter. So anyway, that's uh, I gotta I gotta end this I gotta end this video. Fascinating, 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 so fascinating. And I know some people that are just gonna be absolutely terrified by this video. And we're going to hear about it. That's kind of why the corner is cool. There's corners to the corner. And the different corners light up in different ways from different things. It's We, we live in an amazing time. Anyway, leave a comment. Let me know what you think.